After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Acts chapter 15, verse 13. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of your servant James. But it's not him that we've gathered to glorify, but you whom he glorified. I pray that you would bless and anoint my words to be true and useful for building up your dear people. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So St. Paul's biography is commented on and expounded on quite regularly in the church, right? From pulpit and teaching times, and naturally so, because it's such a focal point of the book of Acts, right? The conversion of Paul. We even have a, a Red Letter Day feast uh, on our Book of Common Prayer calendar for just the conversion of Paul, not only his martyrdom, which is celebrated in June, but in January, we celebrate his conversion. And indeed, um, it's become sort of a normal point of reference, even for describing parts of our own Christian life, like pieces of Paul's own story, right? You know, the, we talk about the Damascus Road experience, things like that. But what we learn from that whole structure that embedded in the book of Acts is Paul's story is that God wants us to pay attention to his working in the lives of his saints, of those he's called. And it's a recurring theme we see over and over again throughout the New Testament. Um, You know, Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul would say, pay attention to those, the lives of those who walk the way of Christ. So, Um, Paul's is not the only biography in the New Testament that's worth paying attention to. Another uh, eminent um, saved sinner um, and saint in Christ Jesus is James, James of Jerusalem. Jesus did a wonderful work in his life that I want to um, both explain because there's a bit of confusion in the New Testament about about which James is which, right? Uh, And then map on to our own lives this morning. So... um, James, it's not James, the son of Zebedee, that we're remembering today, right? James and John, the brothers who, together with Peter, were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, you know, that, that James. Um, this is the James that we, I hope you kind of caught the little bits of the readings that we just heard. Um, this is the half-brother of Jesus. Um, half, at least, because he had a different human father, because Jesus had no human father, right? He was born of a virgin, Mary. Um, but possibly traditionally understood as half-brother in a double sense as well, that um, James was uh, a son of Joseph from before he'd ever met Mary, from a previous marriage. Um, that's the traditional understanding. And the interesting thing about Jesus' um, half-brothers is that during his earthly ministry, they don't believe a word of what he's saying. We hear it twice, actually, in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 3... It's recorded that um, his family is outside of Jesus' teaching, and it says they thought he was out of his mind. I don't think that includes Mary, because she'd had the special revelation from the angels about who Jesus was. It's talking about his brothers and his sisters. Like, ah, crazy brother is what they thought. They didn't believe what he said. John chapter 7 actually pins the tail on the donkey. It says in John 7, his brothers did not believe in him. That's James. This is the James we're talking about, an unbeliever even though he's uh, near kin to the Lord. Um, So then, but what's most significant in terms of his biography 
we hear record of recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, these, the list of resurrection appearances, right? which is really, as it were, like a court docket for the verifying there are eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. You know, appeared first to Peter, sometimes called Cephas. That's just the Aramaic word for Peter. Um, and the 12, uh, and the 500, and then to James, and then last of all to, you know, to Paul. But that's the James we're talking about, the, uh, who was once an unbelieving half-brother, becomes believing. And he receives his own one-to-one unique appearance of Christ in his resurrected body, showing himself to his beloved half-brother. So, okay, so step one of his biography is it concerns his salvation. He gets a, a resurrection appearance, just himself. Um, we know he's there on the day of Pentecost. You have to pay close attention to catch it, but at the end of chapter one it says, you know, the twelve were gathered in the upper room, and Mary... And the women who ministered together with Jesus in his, that sort of traveling cohort that's walking between Galilee and Jerusalem, Galilee and Jerusalem. And it says at the end of chapter 1, and his brothers. Because they've received a resurrection appearance. James must have told his other brothers, because his brothers plural. And there they're gathered together. So James is in the room at Pentecost. And this is the James that writes the book of James that we have. Um, the, the Holy Spirit spoke through in one incredible letter. Because presumably James wrote lots of letters. But those were just James. The book of James, the letter of James that we have in the Bible, was when the Spirit spoke through James for the church for all time. So he, resurrection appearance, he's present at Pentecost. Um, and the one thing we know about him from beyond the biblical record, there's a near contemporary historian. He lived the generation after the apostles named Hegesippius. Great name. And he, discuss, he says, um, so fervent was James in prayer that his knees looked like the knees of a camel. Uh, can you picture that from the zoo? Like just a big, gnarled, knotted callus of a camel knee? Uh, and so he's forever been known as Camel Knees uh, because he spent so much time on his knees praying and supplicating the Lord. So he's very devout in prayer. And the next sort of time he pops up in our um, New Testament record, we see about 20 years after Jesus raised, was raised from the dead, there's a question that's troubling the church. And it's, you know, because of course all, the, all of the first Christians were Jews, right? Ethnic Jews. They're Jewish, the blood of Abraham in their veins. All of the apostles. Um, all of those even who were gathered at Pentecost. Almost all of those at Pentecost. Um, so, but then the gospel goes beyond just the descendants of Abraham and goes to the Gentiles, all the other uh, ethnic groups and races of the world. And this sort of question arises of, do they need to be circumcised Right? That's the marker to be a part of God's people up until Jesus came. And there's this question. And there were, those, there were some in the church who said, yeah, no, you need to have faith in Christ, and then the men need to get circumcised. Right? That was sort of their, their instinct. And this question is troubling the church. And, of course, St. Paul said, believed, no way, of course not. But the church gathers in council to settle the question. So that's what we see is that um, James who um, what we see in, in Acts is that he is presiding over this council recorded in Acts chapter 15, which corroborates with what we know from later church historians that he was appointed Bishop of Jerusalem, the first Bishop of Jerusalem. He presides over this council and takes the question from these Christians and he listens to the voices of the other apostles. Right? Paul and Barnabas give their testimony. Look what the Holy Spirit is doing among the Gentiles, totally independent of circumcision and the keeping of the law. And Peter weighs in and gives his discernment. And then James speaks and the council is settled. 
it's noteworthy that he listens to the other voices of the other bishops, or apostles, I should say. But the, it's most notable that what does he do to settle that, the question? He quotes the prophet Amos. That's what he does. He quotes from the prophet Amos and says, uh, Amos prophesied that in the tabernacle of the New Jerusalem, Gentiles will be there. They don't become Jews by getting circumcised. They, they're Gentiles. God's plan is to save Jew and Gentile through Jesus. But in the course of that council, famously, right, and this is all just the biography, he shows great tenderness to the consciences of his Jewish Christian brothers who have spent a lifetime avoiding eating pork, making sure that like nothing was slaughtered in the pagan way where they didn't let the blood drain out. They kind of just wrung the neck and let the blood stay in. I am um, just, uh, this metaphor, is really, this teaching is not metaphor. This cultural practice has really cut home. I got to slaughter a couple of Stephen's chickens a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago now. Um, and yeah, you, you're supposed to let the blood drain out. That's what we, that's what I learned from Stephen. Um, but yeah, you're supposed to let the blood drain out. That was a Levitical prescription, actually prescribed in the time of Noah. So the Jewish Christians, they'd been so accustomed to these taboos prescribed by the law of Moses that James says, for the sake of the consciences of your brothers, and I hear I'm paraphrasing, he doesn't put those words in there. Um, the Gentile Christians need to not do that, to not cause scandal. Like, we need to keep peace with each other. And I hope you hear the echoes of where we see that elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul with um, food sacrifice to idols, you know, sensitivity to the consciences of others is part of unity in the church. But there's a limit, and this is sort of, I think, the sort of crowning gift and deposit of James's story. The climax of his biography is that in this decisive moment in early church history, James, led by the Spirit, refuses to add to the gospel. Right? It, sensitivity to consciences is one thing, but we are not going to add to the door to paradise. It's Jesus himself. The message that he has died for us and that through nothing but our faith in him, we continue to participate in salvation in him and have the hope of everlasting life. Right? And the, um, the, the gospel, James, you know, he never, he, Jesus was so clear it's the sinner who just beats his breast and says, Lord, have mercy on me. That's the one who's justified. Just a simple prayer of faith is, justify, is justifying. It's not circumcision. It's not keeping of the law. And it would have been the easiest thing to appease a lot of people in the room to say, well, come on, let's just, see, let's just add circumcision to it. But we know through the Spirit who spoke through St. Paul in Colossians. If circumcision were to be added to the gospel, then um, you have been severed from Christ. Right? If you add anything, mentally add anything, to Christ, you're actually taking away from Christ. That's what James weighs in on. No, we're not to circumcise the Gentiles. Salvation is a free gift received by faith. Nothing that you do is some sort of meritorious law-keeping that, that can somehow please the Father more than he is already fully satisfied and pleased when he beholds his Son who died for us. James refuses to add to the gospel. Okay, so that's James's biography. Let's walk it back as it applies to our life. Same thing for us. Follow James's pattern of adding nothing to the gospel. It can be tempting, especially when you've walked as a Christian for a long time. Sort of conceive of the Christian faith. Well, yes, you believe in Jesus. 
and you know you really got to kind of keep these cultural rules or and you know there's this one really important thing add nothing to the gospel but like James to still maintain tenderness for the consciences of others it says in Romans 14 um, blessed is the one who isn't judged in the sense of negative condemned by what he approves we need to be careful what we give sanction to to not scandalize the consciences of others Add nothing to the gospel, showing tenderness to others. And then in matters of uh, uncertainty, theological, practical, because it was both in this case, right? In the year 49. Um, anchor in scripture. Scripture is the bedrock, right? James settled the, the council from the book of Amos. Likewise, on any difficult question, what does the scripture say? It's a question Jesus himself, himself asks his followers. How do you read it? How do you read it? Read the scriptures. And then sort of derived from that, not as significant, but still useful. What, you know, it's meaningful that to settle a question, the church gathered together. All the leaders of the church gathered together and they spoke with one mind and they wrote this letter that gets distributed and that throughout we see recorded in the book of Acts. So we also can rely, if all of the church leaders have gone together, and they didn't use the word leader back then, they used the word bishop. When all the bishops get together and they agree on something, that's really a helpful gift to discern what is the mind of the Spirit, what is the right reading of the Scriptures. Because circumcision is so important in the Old Covenant, you could maybe hear the sort of legal case that those at Acts, at the Council of Jerusalem were making. But with one mind, the bishops agreed, no, we must not add to the Gospel. And then at an individual level, um, I hope that the picture of James's knobbly, nasty knees embeds in your mind as an aspiration, that on our deathbed, may it be many years from now, our knees would be so gnarly from how much time we've spent praying, praying to the Lord, asking for our needs, praying the Psalms, praying. And then back at the beginning of James's story, I think it's sweet and edifying. It even caught my ear in the Psalm, Psalm 1 will bear his fruit in due season. James was there in the upper room. The same tongue of fire that landed on Peter landed on James. It says it landed on all. Peter, filled with the Spirit, instantly starts preaching and 3,000 are converted and it's Pentecost, right? The manifestation of his, his gifts of the Spirit happens right away in this incredible drama. Dramatic way. Um, for James, his was more, his fruit ripened much later. He didn't preach some amazing sermon on... Well, it does say that all, many of them were speaking in tongues, so maybe he was among the tongue speakers, but he didn't preach the sermon, the Pentecost sermon. But James received that same gift, but his gift of wisdom and leadership bore fruit 20 years later when he settled this, the hottest question in the New Testament church, led by the Holy Spirit. So we see Pentecostal gifts blooming 20 years after the fact. And we should map this onto our own lives, that through the gift of baptism, and especially the gift of confirmation. The, the gifts the Holy Spirit has given you, maybe they're already bearing fruit in your life, maybe they're still ripening and will bear fruit to come, as the Lord wills. And lastly, on this, um, I think there's a tender point of meditation on the fact that James received his own resurrection appearance. It's pretty huge, right? 
Um, we know from Jesus' own teaching that unbelieving demand of a sign doesn't get answered, right? Remember Jesus says a couple times, you know, the Jews say, show us a sign, and he says it's an unbelieving generation that asks for a sign. So kind of by reverse engineering, I don't think James was in the position of saying, I can't believe it, I won't believe it, and the Lord stopped him in his tracks. It's possible. But in pondering it for a number of years, I'm convinced that there was something in James that, and here I'm reading, um, as Brother Mike sometimes says, but in the white space between the texts of the scripture. Um, I believe James, a part of him wanted to believe, but he was held back by the normity of the claim of Christ, by who knows what reasons. But he's held back. But Jesus shows himself to James, and unbelief is knocked over, and the sort of the, the wanting to believe is metamorphoses into true belief. And I think there's a picture here for us. Um, that as long as there's a portion of our hearts and, and in the hearts of those we love, that's some deep level that wants to believe, the Lord will seek out that one and show himself. It might take, t- it might take a while. But the Lord wants to save all people. He wants to knock down barriers to belief. And so... Um, we look and we wait and we pray for Christ to come to us spiritually, right? Not, um, although there are a few cases in later church history of sort of, you know, really sort of getting a vision of Christ in glory or something like this. Um, rarely with a sort of optical vision like James had or Peter had or Paul had, uh, but coming with spiritual, coming in a spiritual but real way, where all of a sudden it just clicks to the mind, oh yeah, of course Christ is risen and is Lord. It's such a subtle but cosmic shift to go from, I'm not sure about that, to, yeah, Jesus is the Lord. And it's, that change isn't made by nature, by the human heart. That's Christ has come and visited the soul. And one of the chief means he's used throughout all of church history is the way he ministers to us through Holy Communion. That in this participation, this faithful participation in Communion, the Lord is strengthening our faith, and sometimes even with a degree of drama, of the sense of, wow, Lord, I, I believe. And so we should come hopeful and hungry that through this sacred meal that the Lord himself has instituted, he would visit us spiritually in ways that's up to him. It might be felt or unfelt, small or big, but to faithfully come saying, Lord, I I want to be strengthened in my knowledge of you through the same way food strengthens the body, that the sacrament strengthens faith and strengthens the soul. That Christ has promised to be present in this meal of bread and wine. He's promised it to be his very body and blood for us. Amen.